how it applies to our lives and the lives around us, I pray first and foremost that you will work a change in my heart, that I will listen to this message and respond to it. And I pray for the brothers and sisters as well here. We don't come to fellowship to fill in a half hour or an hour on a Sunday morning, but rather to grow closer to you. And I pray that that will be the result today, that your name will be glorified and we will be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's see how we go. Oh dear. Righto. I'm probably going to have to turn and look at that since I can't actually see anything on here at all. Never mind. So truth, truth is somewhat of an important question. And our world seems to have a very strange view on truth these days that you can have several truths at the one time. All right? And I guess in some respects that's right, but in the most essential core of truth, that's not right. Two things, two things that are in conflict with each other cannot both be true at the one time. And this discussion is quite common within the scripture, and I want us to look at the sort of starting point where I'm going this morning, which is John 18, 37 to 38, where Pilate says to Jesus, so you're a king, are you? Um, now, if you're not quite sure where that fits in, just go back and read it later on, but it's quite an interesting discussion that goes on there. Pilate, as an individual, is being challenged. Do you, who do you say Jesus is? Unfortunately, he fails that particular test. And Jesus said, you rightly say I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Okay. Everyone who is of the truth hears my word. And Pilate clearly doesn't like that particular answer and goes, ah, what's truth? How important is that, basically? And storms off. This, of course, is, from my point of view, an essential failure. Now, there are a number of competing truth claims in our world today. One of the competing truth claims by our atheist friends is that there is no God. You guys have all come here this morning to sit around and waste your time talking to the air. Now, I obviously don't agree with that, otherwise I wouldn't be here, but that is one of the truth claims. And what I want to do this morning is compare and contrast these truth claims and then move into the gospel itself. Now, let's see how I go about this. Um, do we have any sound? No gods, no life after death, okay, uh, no ultimate foundation for ethics, no... Help. What have I done wrong? It's my volume. No ultimate yeah. meaning in life. I think I do that, don't I? Now you've done it. You bad person. And no human free will. We'll begin to get back. All right, we'll go back. No, we're still not hearing him, so that's all right. 
I don't really desperately need him. If you want to, you can go onto the internet and look at him. This is a speaker by the name of Dr. William Provine. Okay? And he is a leading atheist. And what he's saying in this particular discussion here is, there is no God. He said, if you're a believer in evolutionary theory, first of all, there is no God. Secondly, are all deeply oh, connected to an, an evolutionary perspective. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow. And that's all there is to it. Dr. Will Provine, professor of the history of biology at Cornell University, gave us another disturbing glimpse into where Darwinism can lead. Oh, I was a Christian, but I never heard anything about evolution because it was illegal to teach it in Tennessee. Dr. Provine's first biology professor changed all that. He started talking about evolution as if it had no design in it whatsoever. And I came up to him and I said, you've left out the most important part. And he said, if you feel the same way at the end of one quarter, I want you to stand up in front of the students in this class and tell them this deep lack in evolution. And I read that book so carefully, I could find no sign of there being any design whatsoever in evolution. And I immediately began to doubt the existence of the deity. But it starts by giving up an active deity, then it gives up the hope that there's any life after death. When you give those two up, the rest of it follows fairly easily. You give up the hope that there's a, an imminent morality. And finally, there's no human free will. If you believe in evolution, you can't hope for there being any free will. There's no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning in human life. We live, we die, and we're gone. We're absolutely gone when we die. Doc? Fairly cheery sort of individual, I thought, especially since he uses the term no hope in that discussion about six or eight times. It's... Not the sort of discussion I would give if I was trying to sell something, for example. What he says is, first of all, there are no God or gods right? because of the evolutionary. By the way, I don't know whether many of you picked it up, but he says that he looked into an evolutionary textbook and could see no evidence of design. And I thought, well, of course not. If I go to a vegetarian meal, I'm probably going to see no evidence of any barbecue either. Um, you don't have a barbecue of meat at a vegetarian meal, and you're not going to find any talk about God in an evolutionary textbook. So why were you surprised? I also love how he goes, oh, and it was illegal to talk about evolution in such and such a place, because, of course, we're so broad-minded now of course, it's illegal to talk about creation in every school in the United States now, but we're much more broad-minded. <clears throat> anyway, now he says there's no purpose in life, because if evolution is true, every one of you sitting here is just a culmination of accidents and another accident waiting to happen. So that's fantastic news. Um, there's no goal-directed forces of any kind whatsoever. You've got no hope for life after death. Now, that's the one that probably worries me to a great extent in terms of if you've got no hope for life after death and this is your only life, why would you 
get out of bed in the morning, the only thing that's possible that's happened to you when you go out and live your day is that you might die. That's a, that's a guarantee at some point. So therefore, you would want to do everything you could to extend your life. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics. This is a fun one because people say it, but they don't really mean it. C.S. Lewis points out that if you really meant this, if somebody did something to you like stole your seat on a train when you got up to get a glass of water or something like that, then you wouldn't feel upset. Why shouldn't they take it? There's no reason why they shouldn't take it. But you do feel upset. So where did your concept of right and wrong come from? People tell me there is no right and wrong. Okay, so is it acceptable for husbands in Papua New Guinea to beat their wives? It's culturally acceptable, so it must be okay. No, that's wrong. Hold on, where did you get wrong from? Oh, because we all agree. Oh, okay. So Hitler wasn't doing anything wrong with all the Nazis because they all agreed. Oh, no, no, no. He was still doing something wrong. You're undermining your own positions, your own logical positions. There is no ultimate meaning to life at all. And there is no free will. Now, the reason why there's no free will is that even your very thoughts are simply the result of chemicals reacting in your brain. And that was all set in motion back at the Big Bang. So there's nothing you can do about it. So all those mass murderers that we like and, and dislike, they couldn't help it. The pedophiles, they can't help it. It's just the chemicals happening in their brain. There's no right or wrong. But I don't really find anybody who believes that at all when you push them on it. Now let's look at a complementary truth claim. John 3. Now I've put uh, 3, 16 to 19. Because as a friend of mine pointed out, we really should include the whole thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, that's our 3.16, but it goes on from there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the, own, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Okay. That's the complementary truth claim. There is a God. He's done something about sin. Something is something, my goodness. He's done the most amazing, astounding, wonderful, sacrificial thing about sin that could ever possibly be done. I'm sure when the angels came to understand what was going to happen, they were, to use an Australian vernacularism, totally and utterly gobsmacked. You're going to become a human. Or to teach them what to die? Um, we don't understand. I'm sure they didn't understand. This is an alternative truth claim. Now, I believe that this truth claim is good news. Not just that there is a God, because the Hindus believe that there's lots of gods. Okay? But this is a God that loves us and has taken the action to restore us to himself. 
something we could not do. Now, I'm going to ask Ruth to come up and tell you a little bit of a story about a young lady that we encountered in Nepal. Now, most of you know that, as, especially those of you who have been husbands and wives for a long time, is that you start to take on the other person's characteristics to an extent. And any of you who have been around Ruth and I know that Ruth has got the habit now of bursting into song about things when we run across various words that she never used to do. And uh, she's become the emotional one through this trip, so if she has trouble getting through it, just bear with her. This is the story of Pabitra. In many ways, it's a similar story to Ruth, and many of you may have heard that story from the Parries or myself, and certainly you would have heard how the Holy Spirit used it in my life. Pabitra is now a year nine age. She comes from a village near Suraket, which is in the western part of Nepal, reasonably close to the Indian border. From a Christian, possibly just not Hindu, poor Dalit, untouchable family, Pabitra and all her family tried to add to the dad's labouring wage. Pabitra earned enough to get herself a mobile phone by the time the family were living in the slums of Suriket, the city. She began to be normally harassed by youths, probably her own age or a little older, who got hold of her mobile phone number. This escalated to an incident where young men drugged her tea, lumped her onto a motorbike... And it's very common to see the passenger slumped up against the driver on a motorbike. So who would have noticed? No one recognised her danger or stepped in. And sadly, the youths successfully transported her to Delhi and sold her for a very large sum of money. They returned to Suriquet and spent up big on all sorts of things, as you can imagine, enough to be noticed by the police and others, which did ultimately assist in Pabitra being found and rescued. Now in Delhi, the brothel owner, madam, could be described as a piece of work. That's what we'd say. Or is she just another victim of a horrible society? Pabitra was subjected to physical knives, beatings, torture... Physical threats and all the while expected to service clients in mind-blowing numbers in daily, nightly activity. The ultimate threat for non-compliance was death and secret burial, so the family would have known nothing had happened. A sister of Pabitra kept searching and was able to trace her whereabouts to this brothel. After two or three attempts, thwarted by Pabitra and others being hidden in the brothel, the sister was able to rescue Pabitra. Those journeys would have been both economically and emotionally distressing for the family, not to mention frustrating. All the while, they would have had some idea of what Pabitra was being subjected to. Once successfully rescued, you would think home and community life would return to normal. For one thing, you just don't get over such treatment. And those around her also 
teased and ridiculed. Very sad, but that's the way a fallen society operates, isn't it? But God had an even better plan for this now year nine age student. Pastor Raju, himself Dalit or untouchable, had begun to operate in the area, rescuing as many as possible of these young ones. Now in Kathmandu, she is living either temporarily at the guest house because of the earthquake or with a number of rescued and orphaned children with a hostel mum and dad. That's not ideal, we know. A family of her own, close to educational and work opportunities would be better. But Gordon wouldn't let me bring her home. <laughs> These girls are now living semi-normal lives with mobile phones and giggling in the night after studying. These several ones, including Pabitra, were in the guest house with us to study uninterrupted by the younger ones for external exams. So we know, we've heard them. On one occasion, we, the team members and Gordon and I took those ones out for dinner at the Nepali equivalent or the price equivalent of Macca's, fried rice, momos or spicy noodles and cake. In public, they are polite and demure or maybe it's just a little subdued. Who could not understand that? Returning to the guest house that evening, evening, walking, of course, I found myself beside Pabitra. Gordon was bringing up the rear, making sure we still had 15 girls because the other young family had taken a taxi. Pabitra took my hand and just held on. It wasn't really dark, but it was late nonetheless. If you've ever been teased or ridiculed, even way back in your childhood, multiply by several hundred and you may get a glimpse of this lass's emotion on that occasion. I can't be there to hold her hand 24-7. There are many local Christians and ones like Leanne Buckley that you've met that fill that need as, as much as they possibly can. But Jesus is there 24-7 and they, these young ones and so many others, hold fast to the truths of the gospel that they're learning in church and with their hostel mentors. Pabitra and others say they want to work with girls like themselves. They are experts already and Jesus has poured out upon them compassion that breaks cultural and self-centred teenage boundaries. That is a joy to behold. So, <clears throat> what does Dr William Provine have to offer this girl? through his philosophies. Well, first of all, there's no right or wrong anyway. So what happened to you? Eh. So what? It's not right. It's not wrong. How can you talk about right and wrong? It's just happened. There you go. Terribly encouraging. 
There's no justice. No one's ever going to pay for what happened to you. Why would you expect that? And there's no meaning in what you experienced either. Nor in what you might now do as a consequence. And nothing good or bad comes out of it. Because there is no good or bad. You live, you die, that's it. And once again, I would say if I was trying to sell something, I wouldn't be getting Dr. William Provine to try and sell it for me. But... I want you to understand that is the natural consequence of that argument. And when people like to have all sorts of discussions with you about your belief systems, hopefully they do, because hopefully we're looking for that opportunity. When people try and say really stupid things, like there doesn't have to be a God for there to be a decent society, you've got examples like this to say, okay, and this is the conclusion of your starting point. A lot of people don't bother to go through to the conclusion of their starting point. So, let's get off that and get on to the good news instead. Gospel. Good news. We use the term all the time. And I wrote to you during the week to say, okay, suppose somebody that you knew as a friend came up to you and said, look, you're always using this word gospel. What are you talking about? Because let's face it, it's our shorthand and they don't know. What are you talking about? What do you mean? In fact, I've had quite a lengthy email discussion with a good friend of mine here just on this topic a while back, and that's one of the reasons why I'm tackling it today. Well, first of all, the gospel starts with a proposition, and I put it to you that it's a fact, that there is in fact a creator. You are not accidental. You're not here accidentally today. You're not living and breathing accidentally. Nothing has happened accidentally. And that he is not only an abstract out there God, but a God, the God, who is intending us to have relationship with him. You look at Adam and Eve. Talks about that God came down and walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. I don't even comprehend what that can mean. How can the Spirit God come and walk? I, I don't know, but that's how it's put. Right? And through Him, through our relationship with Him, we are then meant to have true relationship with one another. Right? Harmony, peace, holiness. However, that was the intention, we choose and have chosen to take ourselves and make ourselves God. And when you step back and think about that, that's a pretty frightening proposition. I wouldn't put me in charge of a chook farm, let alone the world, let alone, one of you, let alone your life. Right? But we do it. We make ourselves God and we choose to disobey. And we, to use that, my most hated of all songs, do it my way. I can't stand that song. I just want to slap people when I hear them singing it. You did it your way. How wonderful. Yes, I know. See, I've still got so far to go. But that's all right. This separated us and separates us from God with no capacity to fix it. 
You've dropped everything and it's all smashed on the floor and there's nothing you can do to repair the situation. So the message is that you, that I, that every single person, from what you consider the best to what you consider the worst, that has ever lived is a sinner. Which doesn't sound much like good news. This, however, is the hardest step because it involves pride. Now, Fiona, when I put out this question to say, think about it, wrote back to me and said, as part of her response, she wrote, for instance, in our culture, people get hung up on the fact or the idea that they are sinful because our society has been saying for years, people are basically good. You're all basically good. Isn't that wonderful? What are you looking at? What are you on when you make a statement like that? So the people that brought down that plane, that M17, is it M17, the one that was brought down in Russia, uh, in Ukraine, they're basically good people. The woman who took Pabitra and used her as a cash cow to make money, regardless of what it did to her, she's basically a good person. Oh, well, maybe not them. Reminds me of when I was talking to the Jewish rabbi down in Brisbane. And he told me that everybody's going to heaven. I said, oh, that sort of surprises me a bit. And I thought, i tell you what, I think I'll push it a little bit. And I said, um, so would that include Hitler? And he looked at me and he said, uh, perhaps for him we make an exception. <laughs> okay. People are not basically good, and anybody who tells you that is just giving you the most wonderful opportunity to beat them over the head with the facts, in a gentle way, of course. And please note, when we make ourselves God, we can excuse anything. When we make ourselves God, we excuse ourselves of everything. Even if you go back to um, Cain and Abel, there is no evidence of repentance on Cain's part. When you read it, it says, oh, if you send me out, people will kill me. What, what about what you just did? Oh, no, I'm not concerned about that. And I put it to you that Hitler, that Eichmann, that Mao Zedong, and that Pol Pot, and if you don't know some of those names, some of the older ones amongst us can explain them to you, that they all told themselves we're doing the right thing. Oh, and just as a little aside here, first of all, well, one of the things you should be, might be interested to know is that Mao Zedong killed more people than any of the Germans. Mao Zedong is recorded to have had 76 million people killed. 76 million? That's just incredible. Um, so the next time somebody says to you, oh, all violence in the world comes from Christians, ask them if they've ever heard of Mao. Might find a very interesting discussion. Uh, Stalin, by the way, was a close second. Hitler only came in third. But I'm sure that he tried hard. Okay, so far this does not sound much like good news. It sounds like it's terrible news, but it's not. Reaching this point is the good news because... Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. These are Jesus' words now, not mine. If you've got a malignant melanoma on your skin, it really is good news when somebody like Kit or someone who knows about these things looks at it and says, hey, there's a problem. You need to deal with that right now. Because if you don't, it will kill you. And not knowing doesn't help you. You really need to know what it's going to do to you and you really need to take some action. And if you don't take some action, if you think, ah, oh, don't really, nah, what the heck, I don't really need to worry about that, then you bear the consequences. So although what we've been talking about so far sounds like bad news, it's good news in that it moves you to do something. Only when you reach this point do you see you have a need. And I'm going to go back to one of my favourite stories. I probably go back to these things all the time, but these are my favourites. And in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 38, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come around for dinner. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. Notice that Jesus was willing to eat with all sorts of sinners, not only tax collectors and thieves, but also Pharisees. So that was nice. He went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, which, in case you missed it, is code for she was quite probably a sex worker. She's come into the Pharisee's house. You've gone into somebody else's house, uninvited, just to see Jesus. And she bought an alabaster flask full of fragrant oil and stood at his feet weeping. Now, if ever there was an example of someone who was at the end of themselves, it's this woman. And not only did she weep, she then leant down and wiped his feet. She kissed his feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. This is an incredible example of humility. Now, John last week was showing us how Jesus exemplified that through the washing of the feet. But this woman isn't just washing with water in hand. She's using her physical self. She is that desperate. That desperate. And not only is she desperate, but she realizes who can help her, and that's Jesus. Okay? That's our starting point. And back in John 3.16, we got that same message that God didn't want to condemn the world, so he sent his son to reconcile us and to bring us back and to realise it. God has taken this action to bring us into his family while we were still his enemies. And not only that, but now God is knowable. He's not like these other gods who you have to wonder, okay, have I kept him happy? Haven't I kept him happy? What am I supposed to do today? What if God gets up in a bad humour? Can you imagine that? If God could get up in the morning in a bad mood like some of us and decide, oh, gee, I want to kick the cat today. Who will I get? I think that Gordon's had it too good and he's such a pain in the neck. I'll give him a bit of a hard time today. What a frightening thought. What a terrifying thought. But that's not the God that we know and believe in. Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. So we can know what our God is like because we've got Jesus. 
And this God is holy. The word holy meaning completely different. In fact, this God is holy, holy, holy. Totally, utterly, abundantly, completely, in every single way, different. Which is a good thing. He is also just. Now this is something that we don't really want for ourselves, but we've got to realise that our God is both a God of love and a God of justice. Sin will be punished. He made a statement back in the beginning that in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And God is always true. He is just. But at the same time, he is gracious. And he wants us to be in intimate relationship with him. Okay. No one. And those same people that I mentioned before, Pol Pot, Hitler, Mao Zedong, None of those people were so bad that the blood of Christ could not cover their sins. I want you to understand that. Because we think, oh yeah, well, God can forgive me because really I'm just a little sinner. But he couldn't possibly forgive those people that flew the planes into the buildings in the United States. How could he ever forgive those? How could he forgive those, that guy who's been hacking the heads off people? He can. Because the blood of Christ is sufficient and if you think that you are, are considerably better than them or that I am considerably better than them, you have no understanding of the holiness of God. Even our smallest sins are a complete and utter offence. But the blood of Christ can cover all. Can. Okay. Now, this is good news. I can be saved, my sins are forgiven, and my future is assured, and it doesn't depend on me. Okay. That is great news. However, I don't know how many of you have read C.S. Lewis's books, but um, uh, one of the ones I love is the Narnia series, and I love the last one called The Last Battle Most of All. And there's a couple of expressions in there that really bring my heart a lot of joy. One of them is a term they use over and over again, but is actually spoken by a unicorn. It says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, and I never knew it till now. Come further up, further in. And that's repeated over and over and over again. And I believe that that's a wonderful expression of what God asks us to be. It's not just enough to sit down now and say, well, that's great, I'm now saved. God wants us to come further up and further in into a close relationship with him every day. And when I finally get there, I'll tell you how to do it. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep travelling and hopefully we'll travel together. And another line, now again, some of you may not have read the books. There is a character in the book which is an allegory of Christ. The character's name is Aslan. He's a great lion. Intriguingly enough, he's also a lamb at another point. But anyway. And these guys are actually now no longer in what are called the shadow lands, but are in the emperor's kingdom. What we would talk about as dead. All right? But dead in a completely different way to the way our world looks at it. And the lion turns to them at the last point in the story and says... You don't seem quite so happy yet as I mean you to be. 
And I think that's probably true for us as well. We're not as happy yet as God means us to be. Because from our joy should come praise to him, which he deserves, and it feeds back, and it's a wonderful, positive feedback loop. So the gospel doesn't just finish at, oh, I'm saved and my sins are dealt with. It goes on further. I am now seen as perfect. This is one that's hard for me. God looks at me, and because he sees what Christ has done, I am counted as perfect. Um, I am able to call God the creator, Abba. I don't know whether that's the right way. Is it Abba or Abba? I'm not sure. Abba. Abba. It's an intimate form of the word father. An intimate form. And Ken, for a lot of you, myself included, can I just remind you, this means that you are not just put up with. You are not a stinking smell in the nose of God that he puts up with because of what he's done. When we think that way, that's our accuser having a fun time. And I don't want him to have a fun time. Okay, We're not someone that is put up with. We are sons and daughters of God, loved, called into a daily closer walk. It's not that God thinks, oh, you know, I've got to have Gordon around. He says, no, Gordon, I want you to come and be with me today. Walk with me. Spend time with me. Know me better. Be conformed to me because that's best for you and brings me joy and me glory. And I have the privilege of not only that for myself, but I can tell my friends. In fact, I've got the responsibility to tell my friends. I can tell my enemies as well. I've got the responsibility to tell everyone. Friends, family, strangers. So it brings back to the good news. I want you to look again at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. So your promise as part of the gospel is an inheritance. That's a pretty good start. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God says, if you want to be righteous... I'll give you that. I'll give you as much of it as you want. We'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So we're promised mercy if we're merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will actually see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We're really continually ramping this whole thing up as you look at it. I am called through the gospel to have my daily life transformed. Give God control of the actions, my thoughts, my loves, my wealth, my entire body. Paul talks about it. Present your entire body as a living sacrifice unto God, which is your reasonable service. And... As I learn to do this, I have the privilege of then sharing that with others. Okay? Just like, for example, when we go out paddling on the weekend, John Shu and Daryl have taught me how to be better at that. That's great. We can learn from each other. And as I associate with my brothers and sisters who've got more experience than me, I can learn more. And when I make mistakes, and I'm going to, and I'm not alone, then I've got a Bible that I can go to and try and find out what I can do about it. I've got the very words of Jesus Christ that I can look at. I've got the indwelling of the Holy Spirit 
and have my brothers and sisters who love me. And then my brothers and sisters and I are all given a gifting by the Holy Spirit so that we can help each other. At least one, and perhaps more than one, for the development and perfection of the body. Let's now return back to Luke. And after there was some supercilious comment by the Pharisee that he was with, Jesus turned back to the back to the woman and said to Simon, have a look at this woman here. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. You didn't wash my feet. Seems to be a fairly common theme in some of the stories. But she's washed my feet with the tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, which was an appropriate greeting, but she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. How much do you have to love someone to lean down and actually kiss their feet. I can tell you that's not something I've ever done. But she has not ceased to kiss my feet since she came in. You didn't give me oil to put over my head, which I'm supposed to do as well as a host. But she has anointed my feet with very expensive oil. We think of oil as something we pour out of a bottle, but this would have been very costly. Therefore, I say to you, her sins are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he then, speaking to the woman, says, your sins are forgiven. And the people sitting around went, who does he think he is to say that he can forgive sins? And on this occasion, Jesus doesn't even bother to answer them. Realistically, Sit over there and be quiet. He says to the woman, now it makes it, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Not just saved, but peace. Shalom. And so we see forgiveness of sin through dependence, desperate dependence upon Jesus. We see the promise of peace. And the story in Luke should be encouraging for another reason. It's an example of true notoriety. Now, when I was young, I heard a poem, I'm not certain who wrote it, called Ozymandias. Shelley or Keith? Shelley, okay. And I won't go into the whole thing here because I've gone way too long as it is, but anyway, um, it basically talks about this great king and all that's left is two lumps of stone. And one of the things of our trips overseas has been you go and see all these wonderful buildings and they're all falling down. Tomorrow, if I had a car accident and wasn't here, in probably less than 12 months, nobody except my family would remember anything about Gordon Harriet. You sit think, oh, so what am I leaving behind? I don't want to leave anything behind. If I'm going to have anything remembered, I want God to be the person who wrote it down said, ah, I saw what you did. And in fact, there's a story in a book I brought with me today that I'm not going to read. Otherwise, Lindsay will have a fit. But it talks about exactly that. And the scripture talks about it as well. It's written in the Old Testament examples where God sees what somebody does and says, write it down. Write down what so-and-so did today. That is real perpetuity. And no one else can give it to us but God. 
We have meaning in our lives. We have a future. We have assurance of justice. All sin will be punished. Every sin that you do, every sin that Pol Pot or Mao Zedong or Hitler or Eichmann or whoever you want to pick on, all sin will be punished. It'll either be punished in the individual themselves or it'll be punished in Christ. All sin will be justly dealt with. How, does the, how do these claims affect Pabitra? How do you think? She now wants, having been through what she's been through, to go and help others because of the message of Christ. Not because that somebody was nice to her, but because she has learnt the message of Christ and she wants to pass it on. You used to have a song about that as well, I'm sure. How does it affect her? She knows that someone will pay for the crimes that were done to her. She knows that she's been forgiven and she knows that all good works that she does in the future for Christ will have a memory and a recording and a memorial and she knows that her life has a purpose. Leaving aside which one is actually true, which one can you sell? Provine's view of life or the gospel's view of life? Now, if what we see in the gospel that I've all been through, and I know it's been long, I'm sorry, get excited, those of you who know me know, but it should excite you. It should excite me every day. And we want to tell other people about it. If one of us got an inheritance of $5 million tomorrow, I bet you wouldn't shut up about it. And that this is so much greater an inheritance... And we think, oh, I'll keep it to myself. Nobody wants to hear. Well, probably they do. If it doesn't excite us, then perhaps we need to ask ourselves the question, why not? The good thing is that even if it doesn't excite us, we can go, well, that's wrong. After all the nagging Gordon's gone on with this morning, I can see that that's wrong. Uh, what will I do about it? Well, we can repent and stop being like that. And we can recite that gospel over and over and over to ourselves until we become excitable. And some of you are going to be more quietly excitable than me, I understand that, but joyful. Okay, now just to finish, a little, something a little bit light-hearted, why bang on about this this morning, Gordon? Because most of the people here this morning have already heard it. Okay, well I want to tell you a little story that relates to Isabel, and I got her permission to mention it. As you know, I'm currently trying to play golf with Lindsay and, and others, and um, the truth of the matter is I'm not terribly good or consistent at it, which is probably a reflection of a number of areas of my life. And I was talking to Isabel about it, and, and she suggested that perhaps I might like to come out and play with the, um, the over-50s group, the University of the Third Age. Yeah. And she said, but you need to be able to play before you come. Perhaps you should get some lessons. Now, I probably didn't show it at the time, but inside my brain went, I know how to play golf. What do I need to go and get lessons for? And it took about five seconds and my brain said, oh, really? You couldn't do with some help? And I thought, my goodness, how does that pride just sneak in? So maybe this is stuff you've heard before. That's great. And maybe you want to tell me, Gordon, I've heard all of this before, then that's great. Come and bang on at me about the gospel after so that I can 
be reminded again, which is why I wanted that song this morning about Tell Me the Old, Old Story. When this world's glory is costing me too dear, remind me. That's what I'm doing for me this morning and hopefully for you as well. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, the gospel is the greatest news possible and sometimes I, and perhaps others here, keep it to ourselves. I think of those lepers in the Old Testament who went out and found the enemy running away, run away and they fed themselves up and took all their goods and they did it about two or three times and they thought, oh, this isn't a good idea. We'll be in trouble if we don't tell everyone else. We should feel like that. We have a wonderful story and we've been greatly blessed. Help us to think to ourselves, oh, this isn't right. I need to share this with others. This is good news for everybody, for Gordon Harriet for Babitra, for my worst enemies, for my closest friends. This is good news. Provoke me to tell them this week. And if there's no response, then there's no response. But I need to proclaim the gospel because you loved me and I should tell other people about it. Help each of us this week to do that, truly following you, recognising our limitations and depending on our Saviour. In Jesus' name, amen.